All right, this morning we're going to go back to Revelation. Revelation chapter 19 is where we left off last time when we were going through our study in Revelation a few weeks ago. As you're turning there, let me just make this comment. Um, It's good to have kids in the service and in our church, okay? It's the future of the church, and sometimes they can be a little bit distracting, but think about what they're learning, okay? They're learning to worship the Lord together with other people. They just need to learn when to stop singing, okay? So, and, I mean, I had somebody, uh, an old guy once, I'm not going to tell who it was, but he said, you know what, they actually sing better than I do, so I'm not going to complain. All right, Revelation chapter 19, uh, we began this several weeks ago, this chapter, and the beginning of Revelation chapter 19 starts off with a praise service in heaven right after the judgment of God upon Babylon. So we're at the end of the tribulation period, but this next section of verses gives us kind of a peek into what this praise service is all about and um, the coming events that will come right after the judgment of God is finished upon the earth. But in chapter 19, it starts off with this praise service, all of the hosts of heaven rejoicing over the judgment of God upon the earth. Now, we had talked about how sometimes it's hard for us to rejoice over God's judgment, but God judges perfectly and in righteousness, and so we should rejoice that he judges sin according to his holiness because it needs to be judged. And here we have the ultimate judgment in chapter 18, as God destroys the system of the Antichrist and brings down all the systems of the world in preparation for the kingdom of Christ. In verse 5 and 6, we have a command given from the throne of God for all of those who fear him, both small and great, to praise God in heaven. And what follows in verse 6, then, is a response of that praise that John describes as like the voice of a great multitude, like the sound of many waters, like the sound of many peals of thunder. And that song of praise that begins in verse 6 goes down through verse 10. And so that's what we're going to read today and focus on as we look at this section of Revelation. So we're going to start reading in verse 6 in the midst of this praise service in heaven, and then down through verse 10. I'm sorry, verse, yeah, 10. So verse 6 starts, it said, I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude and the voice of many waters and as the voice of many thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let me just remind you, this is John speaking as he's revealed, uh, as he's given this vision from the angel. Verse 7 says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. And he saith unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said unto me, See that thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. We'll stop there this morning. Let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll have a few minutes as we look into this passage. Lord, again, we just need your help, and we thank you that you've given us your word, but Lord, we can't understand it on our own. 
And so we need your spirit to guide us and teach us, even as we read together, as we study together, and look at this passage in Revelation. Lord, Revelation is not an easy book to understand many times, and so we need your help today. And just teach us and challenge us and show us the things that are important for us to, to know and to put in practice in our lives as we follow you. And so, Lord, just teach us during this time, and I pray that you would fill us with your spirit to give understanding. Lord, fill me with your spirit to give strength and wisdom, to give me the words to speak that your truth might be proclaimed, Lord. We just need you to do your work now. And so we trust you in your strength and in your truth to do those things in us that you need to do. Lord, bless this time and accomplish your work, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as I mentioned, we're in the midst of this praise service in heaven, praising God for his judgment, praising God for his um, getting rid of sin on the earth. And then there's another praise that comes in verse 6, and it says, they praise him because... The Lord God omnipotent reigneth. And we touched on that verse the last time we were together in Revelation. But what they're saying here in their praise is praise God that he is almighty or all-powerful. That's what the word omnipotent means. And aren't you glad we have a God that's all-powerful, that's not limited in what he can do? Um, his power is available to us, not that we have unlimited power to do what we want to do but the unlimited power of God is available to accomplish in us all that God wants to accomplish in us and through us all that God wants to accomplish through us. And many times we limit ourselves in what God can do through us because we look at ourselves and we see our own weakness and we forget that we have an omnipotent, all-powerful God that's working through us. And so don't limit what God can do through you and in you. Because God is all-powerful. But all the multitudes of heaven and earth praise God because he is omnipotent. And then it says, that God, the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. That means he's in control. He's in control of everything. He's not only in control of what happens on this earth, but he's in control of what happens in your life. He's in control of what happens everywhere at all times. And so not as the only not only is he all-powerful, but he is in control with that power. So everything that happens to you and me is for our good. That's Romans 8.28. We need to remind ourselves of that because God has a plan for it, and it all will come out for good. And so we praise him for that. And that's one of the reasons we gather to worship him on Sunday, because he is God. He is all-powerful. He is omnipotent. He reigns in our life. He reigns in the world. He reigns in all the universe. And so the heavens and the earth proclaim his praise in verse 6, but then in verse 7, it goes on. And it says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. Now this marriage of the Lamb, it starts with, by, it, say, it says, give, they give honor to him, or give honor to him. Who? To Jesus Christ, the Lamb. And why? Because his marriage is come. Now, I want to give a point here, or make a point here, that as we read about the marriage in verse 7, it says, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. That is a different event than what we read in verse 9, and it says, and, be, and he said unto me, write, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb, and he saith unto me, these are the true sayings of God. In verse 
7, we have the marriage of the Lamb. In verse 9, we have the marriage supper of the Lamb. And there is a difference. And if you think about our modern-day weddings, it's the difference between the wedding ceremony and the wedding reception. Now, many times they happen on the same day, okay? But they're different events. And so here we see first in verse 7, the marriage or the wedding of the Lamb with his church. In verse 9 is the marriage supper. And in order to try to illustrate that for you, I want you to get the bigger picture here. And so I'm going to take a few minutes and use the ancient Jewish wedding that God has given the Jews as a symbol of what we're looking at in this union between Christ and the church. So first, in an ancient Jewish wedding... Many times those were arranged marriages, okay? The father of the bride would, uh, the father of the groom would pick a bride for his son. We see that in, in the story of Abraham and Isaac. Abraham sent his servant to go find a wife for Isaac. And so we have a picture in all of this progression of things that happen in the ancient Jewish wedding, starting with an arranged marriage. God chose us for Jesus Christ from the beginning of creation. In John chapter 6, verse 65, it says, Therefore I say unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my Father. That's Jesus talking. And he's saying, you don't come to me. You're not part of my church. You're not part of my bride unless God has already chosen you. So God chose the church to be the bride of Christ. Just like the ancient Jewish wedding. The father chose the bride for the son. And so all of those who are saved between Pentecost and the rapture will be part of that bride. So there was arranged marriage in the ancient Jewish wedding generally. Then what would happen is the groom would come to the bride's father and they would agree upon what was called the bride price. That was money that the groom would pay for the privilege of marrying the fa- that father's daughter. Now, I wish that were still intact in today, okay, because I got five daughters. I'd be doing okay if that was true, all right? It's not, but that's okay. Uh, I've got three married, two more to go, okay? But the, the groom would agree with the bride's father to a bride price. The bride price for the church was the blood of Christ. He paid that price. It's what we call the atonement for our sins. And so that was what was necessary in order to purchase our freedom. Anyway, the bride price was agreed upon, and then the father of the bride would go to the bride and ask her if she wanted to marry this man, if her consent, get her consent to this marriage. And when she said yes, then they would signify this agreement in a contract. It was a legal contract that was filed in court, actually. And this agreement was binding to them. It was called the betrothal. Okay, think of it in somewhat in our terms of engagement, but it was a serious legal contract that they had agreed to marry one another. And when they agreed that, then the bride and the groom, the future bride and groom, would sit and drink a cup of wine together in agreement. And that was the last time they would sit and drink in fellowship together until the wedding, cere- the, the wedding feast that would come after the wedding ceremony. Now, I talked about this a little bit in our communion service last week, how Jesus sat at the Last Supper with his disciples. 
And as he gave that cup to his disciples and said, drink ye all of it, because this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many. He then said, this is the last time I will drink this cup with you until we do it together in my Father's kingdom. Christ sat with his disciples and drank that cup as the church began just shortly after that at Pentecost. After Jesus had ascended, the Holy Spirit was given. The church was started at that point, but the foundation of the church was found in those disciples that sat with him at that Last Supper. And in the, in the coming kingdom, when Jesus comes back to earth, he will sit with those disciples and all of us as his church and drink that cup again with us. That's the next time that it will happen. And so the bride and the groom would drink that cup to agree on this contract. At that point, the contract was set and it was filed in court. And then the groom would leave. They wouldn't get married at that point. The groom would leave. They had the agreement. They were betrothed. They were uh, legally sealed together. But the groom would leave, and he would go home to build for his bride a new house. And usually what it was was a, a house or rooms that were connected to his father's house. Over in, in Israel, it's very common to see multiple generations of the same family living within the same house or houses that are very closely connected. It's called a kibbutz, okay? If you've ever been to Israel, you may experience living in a kibbutz. But it's a family of, uh, I'm sorry, a, 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 a collection of houses that house different generations of the same family, okay? And when Jesus told his disciples in John 14, in my father's house are many mansions, what did he say after that? I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again. So Jesus gives us this picture of what he's doing in heaven now in the ancient Jewish wedding. The groom goes and prepares a place for his bride. That's what Jesus is doing now. The, the house was ready, the bridal chamber, if you will, was ready when the father of the groom said it was ready. The groom didn't decide when it was time to go back and get married. The father of the groom did. And that's why Jesus told his disciples, but concerning that day or hour, the day he will return, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So God, the Father, knows the day when he will send his Son back to claim his bride. But that's how it was in the ancient Jewish wedding. The father of the groom would decide, okay, the bridal chamber is ready, and now it's time to go. Now, during that time that the groom was away and was preparing that home for his bride, many times he would assign a friend, a very close friend of his, to remain in the city with the, uh, the, the bride, the, what do I call it, the fiancé or whatever, okay, the future bride. That friend's job was to encourage her and help her with preparations that she was trying to make and to make sure that she was ready when the groom came during the time that he was away. The fact of the friend being there was kind of a comfort to the bride that the groom hadn't signed this agreement and then abandoned her and would never show up. Now, she was legally bound to him through that contract, but they weren't married yet, so she couldn't marry another one. She had to marry that groom, but if he never showed up, then she would remain a spinster her whole life. And so that friend was there to assure her, yes, he's coming back. 
And I'm here to help you in the meantime and to make sure that you're ready. And that's exactly what Jesus did when he went to heaven. He told his disciples that unless I go, I can't send you the comforter. He sent the Holy Spirit, his friend, or really the Spirit of God that dwells in us, to be that assurance that Jesus is coming back. John 15 and verse 26, Jesus said, When the Comforter is come, who I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. In other words, he shall continually remind you that you're married or betrothed to this groom who will come back for you. Paul says the same thing in Ephesians chapter 1. In verses 13 through 14, he says, In whom also ye trusted, talking about Christ, after ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, in whom also after that ye believed that ye were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. That's the seal on that covenant, that Christ will return. And he goes on, he says, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. In other words, that's the guarantee. The fact that the Holy Spirit is in us is God's guarantee that Jesus will come back for his bride. And so the the bride's friend stays there until the groom returns. Now, at the father's word, the groom would then gather his friends and immediately set off to claim his bride. When the father of the groom said, it's time The house is ready. Go get your bride. There was no delay. The groom would get his stuff and leave at that moment. And it would be a a journey that may take hours, may take days. It didn't, they didn't know, you know, depending on how far apart. But no one on the bride's end knew when the groom was coming. They were all in anticipation of his return, but they had no idea when he returned. It could be a couple months. It could be a year. In some cases, it could be a couple of years. Now think about that. If you were an engaged bride and your groom hasn't shown up for two years, you might start to lose hope. Well, as the bride of Christ, it's been 2,000 years. But we don't need to lose hope, okay, because he is coming back. But when the father of the groom said it was time, it was time. One of the jobs of the friend of the groom on the other end was to watch for his friend, the groom. And when that groom appeared on the road or on the horizon, then the friend would shout, and sometimes they would have some kind of a, an announcement, a trumpet or a bell or something that they would do, uh, use to announce the coming of the groom. And then everybody would know at that moment, the time is here. It's time for the bride and her, her, her bridesmaids to go. And isn't that what Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, The Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. So there's a great picture that we see of Christ and his church all through this. And, we're no, and we know that the groom could come back at any time, and that's why Jesus says in Matthew 24, verse, uh, Matthew 24 Watch therefore, for ye know not what hour your Lord doth come. So as the groom approached, this announcement would be made, and then the bride would gather her bridesmaids so that they would all be ready. Now, it wasn't like, okay, here he comes, let's start getting ready, because they didn't, the the groom didn't come with his groomsmen and then sit around and twiddle their thumbs and wait for the women like today, okay? Um, I don't mean to impugn anybody, but 
through my ministry as pastor, there have been several times that I have not been on time when I should have been there, and people generally never said anything to me about it. But in a in the course of conversation, I've heard a few times this statement, well, you have five daughters, we understand, okay? There's just something about the women taking a little longer to get ready than the men. I don't know if that's just a stereotype, but it seems to be true in my family, okay? That's not what would happen here, and that's not what's going to happen. When the groom showed up, they had to be ready. When he came, it was time to go. End of story. And if you weren't ready, you did not go. Jesus alluded to this in the parable of ten virgins. Remember, five had oil, five did not. Their oil ran out. They weren't ready. They went to buy oil. The groom came. The five virgins who had oil went. The five who were left without oil got left out. And so the groom shows up, and it's time to go. And literally, in many cases, he and his men, his groomsmen, would come in and and physically pick up the bride and the bridesmaid and put them over their shoulder and carry them back to the father's house, the groom's father's house. That, that is what happened, okay? And that is what will happen to us as the church. Again, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, it says, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first, Then what about us on the earth? We which are alive and remain shall be caught up together. Jesus literally will catch us up, will pick us up. Now, I don't know if he's going to do it with his hands. It just says we will go up. But the word there is caught up in the Latin, rapturo. That's where we get our word rapture from. When Jesus catches us up and carries us to his home with the Father. So that's all of the events that took place before the wedding. So the groom comes, gets his bride. The groomsmen get the bridesmaids. They all go to the father of the groom's house. And as the bridal party arrives back at the groom's father's house, the bride would prepare herself for the ceremony after that journey. Now, it could be a long journey. It was probably a very dusty and tiresome journey. And so the bride was given time at that point to prepare herself, one of the first things she did was to take a bath in what they call the mikvah. The mikvah was either a pool of water or some kind of a a basin, a, a large basin that you could get in completely, and it was fresh flowing water. It wasn't water that was stagnant that sat there. It was fresh flowing water. And the Jews believed that it was only fresh water that would cleanse you according to the law. And so the bride would cleanse herself first, take a bath in that mikvah, completely submerse herself. Now, in a sense, we have a picture of that in baptism. In fact, the early church and the way the early church baptized was very similar to the way the Jews baptized. Now, you didn't know the Jews baptized, did you? Maybe you did. But when someone converted to Judaism from being a Gentile, the first thing they did was remove their clothes, go in this mikvah, and go completely under the water, and then come out and put on fresh clothing, white linen clothing. And the symbolism in that, in Judaism, was that this person was completely renouncing everything that they had been. 
They are no longer a Gentile. They no longer worship the same gods. They no longer hang with the same people. They now are dedicated to Yahweh, Jehovah, and their life will show that in how they live. So it's a new life. That's exactly what we have in baptism, that we die to ourselves, we die to sin, and being raised in Christ as we come up out of the water, we are raised in new life in Christ to live unto righteousness. And so that's very similar to what the bride did. She cleansed herself, basically saying, my old life is over, I'm washing all of that away, and now I am presenting myself pure before my groom. And so that's one of the first things she did. After that, she would put on a white linen dress that signified purity. Now, we still, in most uh, marriages and weddings today, the bride will wear white. That's what the white means. It is a sign of purity, that she has kept herself pure for her groom. And so that still continues to happen. Now, look at verse 8 in Revelation chapter 19. Okay, all of that was introduction. Now we get into the verses here. Verse 8 in chapter 19 says, And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the linen is the righteousness of saints. And so as we go to heaven, we are given white linen by Christ. To where? It represents the righteousness that we have in him. And so we're presented clean before our groom on that great wedding day after the rapture, just like the bride in the ancient Jewish wedding. But we're not perfect yet, okay? We have to be purged. Just like the bride had to cleanse herself from that journey, we have to be purged when we get to heaven. We will receive a glorified body, but we, as if we go up, Before we die, this body still has the curse of sin in it. And so all of that has to be erased as God, as Christ gives us a glorified body. But there's a cleansing that has to happen. And this is the preparation of the bride. When we go to heaven, and I haven't taught this, I think, in the process of going through Revelation, but I think this is a great place to point it out. When we go to heaven just after the rapture, we will stand before Christ as he sits on a judgment seat to judge our works. And it's at that point we will receive rewards for what we have done sincerely in ministry to Jesus Christ. Not just good works done on earth, but those things that were truly done in glory to the Father. Anything else will be burned. First Corinthians chapter three, or Second Corinthians chapter three talks about this. When it talks about the ministry that we have on earth, and we should not build on any other foundation than that which is built on Christ. And those works that we've done, apart from Jesus Christ, maybe for our own purposes, to make ourselves look good, to try to uh, get God to see us in a better light, those things are wood, hay, and stubble, and all of those will be burned up. This is that judgment when those things will be burned up. This bema seat, and that's really what it, was, what it is, this bema seat judgment when Christ sits before us and judges all of our works is a time not to judge and punish us for sin because that's already been taken in the blood of Christ. He's been covered, that was covered already in his death. But it's a time when Christ will separate the pure works from the impure works that we have done in our life and ministry. And all of those impure works that we had the wrong motivation for, all the impure works that we did for ourselves, 
in our own strength, for our own purposes, those will all be burned. And what's left is gold, silver, and precious stones, 1 Corinthians tells us. And those are the things that we will have to present to Jesus Christ as our groom when we stand before him as the bride. So we're robed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, now completely purged from sin, and all of our works now have been judged by Christ on that bema seat, and now we are rewarded for those good things that we have done. And so the, the verse 8 here in chapter 19 says, we are given white linen, but it says, and to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen. That means we didn't do it ourselves. That means Jesus did it in us. All the good works for which we're rewarded, that wasn't us. That was the power of God working through us. That was God being glorified through our lives. Everything else gets burned up. And so we have a picture in this linen, the white linen that the bride will wear of the righteousness that we have in Jesus Christ. And it shows the cleansing that we will go through. Okay, Romans chapter 14. And I want to get back to this. I, I skipped this, but I want to come back to it. Romans chapter 14, verse 10. Paul's talking uh, or discussing the issue of judging others because they eat meat, and sometimes meat was offered to idols. There's a debate about that in 1 Corinthians 8 and 1 Corinthians 10. But in Romans 14, Paul says we should not judge each other because they eat meat. There were Christians who didn't eat meat at all just to make sure they didn't eat some defiled meat or meat offered to idols. And so they would judge other people, saying, oh, you shouldn't eat meat at all because that could be offered to idols. And Paul says, stop judging each other. Okay, you're all going to be judged. He says, stop judging each other about that. In verse 10, he says, why dost thou judge thy brother, or why dost thou set it not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 7, judge not lest ye be judged. We're not each other's judges. Christ will do that work. We are here to serve him and to serve each other. So stop judging people and just serve them. And those judgments will be applied to us by Jesus Christ, who is the righteous judge. So that judgment we will go through will strip us of all of our unworthy deeds and leave us with just those gems which are worthy of presenting to Jesus Christ. Now, all of that cleansing happens before the wedding. Then comes the wedding ceremony. The ceremony itself is a small private gathering of the wedding party and family. When the bride is ready, the bridesmaid, the groomsmen, the bride and groom, and the father of the groom and mother of the groom probably, would gather and the ceremony would take place. That was it. There was no big guest list. Very small very short, very dedicated to this purpose of binding these two together in marriage. They didn't have big weddings like we have today. They didn't invite 500 or 800 people or whatever. I think at our wedding, how many did we have? 500 people at our wedding. We, we, when we decided to get married, we were like, yeah, we want a small wedding, just friends and family, and, and that was, went from about 60 people to 500. But Okay, they didn't do that in ancient Jewish times. They had just a very simple ceremony that was closed to the public. 
The father would oversee the wedding. When the ceremony was over, the groom would take his bride into the bridal chamber to consummate the marriage. Okay? And that was the wedding ceremony. Now, after the wedding ceremony, the bride and groom, especially the bride, would stay in that bridal chamber for seven days. And the bride would not be shown or show herself for seven days after the wedding ceremony. How long is the tribulation period? Seven years. And so at the rapture, when we go up and the wedding takes place, we will be in heaven with the Lord for seven years. At the end of which, he will come back to earth with us to present his bride to all of creation. Nowhere in Scripture, actually, do we have a record of the actual wedding ceremony of Christ and his bride. It it doesn't talk about it, except this mention right here in Revelation chapter 19. All of Jesus' teachings and all of his parables in the New Testament talk about the wedding feast. Okay, And that's what we're going to get to. Because he was talking to Jews, and I want us to understand the difference. The wedding is for the church, not for the Jews. The Jews, his people, focused on the wedding feast, and I'll explain that in just a minute. But the words here in verse 7 says, the marriage of the Lamb is come. The verb is come in Greek is written in what we call the aorist tense. It means it's completed, perfected already, past tense. It's already happened. So as we get to this point in Revelation 19, when John is about to write this about being blessed are those who are invited to this feast, the wedding has already happened. It's not happening at the same time. And remember, we've spent Revelation 6 through 19 talking about the judgment that God will bring upon the earth during the tribulation period. Nowhere in those passages, in those chapters, do we see any reference to the church at all, except if you look at the 24 elders that are in heaven rejoicing with God. They represent the church. So we're not involved in the tribulation. We're in heaven with our groom, praising God. So the wedding ceremony is very short, very small. But this, the wedding has come or the marriage has come in verse 7 means it's already happened. And the bride has made herself ready to be presented at the end of, of the seven years or the seven days. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul gives an analogy of Christ and his church, and he says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Now, if we look at the state of the church today before Christ's coming, I don't think we could use these words to describe it. We are not without spot or wrinkle. We are not holy and without blemish in everything yet. But we will be when we meet our our groom and go through that wedding. At that point, we will be completely cleansed of all remnants and elements of sin. And so we will be robed in those perfectly white robes of Christ's righteousness. So the wedding ceremony happens. Seven days passes, and at the end of seven days, then the groom would get his bride, and she would dress herself up and make herself look as presentable as she could, beautiful, white robes, all the gems, all the jewelry, 
Now the focus is there. The bride and groom come forth to the wedding feast. And now we're at verse 9. Okay? Verse 9 says here in Revelation, And he saith unto me, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is the wedding feast or the wedding supper. It will be the very first event of the millennial kingdom of Christ after he comes to earth and after he conquers his enemies. We'll read about that in the second part of Revelation 19. But this will be the very first event, the wedding feast. And not only the bride will be there, but this is the reception. So all the friends of the groom will be there. All the other people will be there. But he says, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper or called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, this is not talking about the church because the church is the bride. And how many weddings have you been to or how many wedding receptions have you been to that the bride had to receive an invitation in order to be there? Okay, usually the bride's the one sending out the invitation. In this case, the groom is sending out the invitation, the groom's father, the groom's family. So if the church is the bride in verse 7, then who are all these people that are invited to the marriage supper, the ceremony afterwards, the the, uh, reception, if you will? It's not the church, so it must be all of those people, and we're in the millennial kingdom, so it's all people who believed in Christ up to that point, minus the church. Now, the church will be there, but we'll be the bride. So the guests are all the people who believed in Christ otherwise. Daniel 12 talks about this. This is the angel talking to Daniel. He says, At that time Michael shall stand up, a great prince which standeth for the children of thy people, and there shall be a time of trouble. There's the tribulation. Such as never was since there was a nation even to that same time. And at that time, talking about the end times in general, thy people shall be delivered. Now he's talking to Daniel, and so when he says thy people, he's talking specifically about the Jews. And he says, thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So he's talking about the general period of the end times here in Daniel. Daniel didn't get the breakdown like we have in the New Testament. Daniel got a general overview, but the angel tells him, at that time, in the end time, the Jews will be awoken. All of the dead people will be awoken. Now, Paul says, not all Jews are Jews, not all Israel is Israel, because many of them did not believe in Jesus. But he says, those who are written in the book of life shall be awoken to life. All the dead Jews who believed in Jesus as Messiah will be raised from the dead at this moment. And they will be part of those guests invited to this wedding feast. And so Daniel is given a preview of the beginning of the millennial kingdom here. Revelation 20, which we're going to get to here shortly, says, And I saw thrones, and I sat upon them, and the judgment was given unto them, and I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus, and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Now, we saw the martyrs from the tribulation who were dead under the altar in the fifth seal. 
praying that God would avenge their, avenge their blood. And, G, and God's response was, wait, wait, I will take care of it. His judgment upon Babylon is that judgment, and right after that, these souls will be resurrected to join Christ on the earth in bodily form for the great marriage feast of the Lamb. And so all the tribulation saints and all the saints of the Old Testament will be the invited guests. And that's who John is, is supposed to write down here, write, blessed are those who are invited or called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then the angel says, these are the true sayings of God. These are the people that will be with Christ and their positions at the end of time. Now, this brings up an interesting point in this discussion. Why, when Israel is God's chosen people all throughout the Old Testament, they were specifically selected by God, starting with Abraham, why are they kind of second-class guests here at the wedding? That's what we could assume, right? Because this is about the church and Christ. This is the great wedding feast of Christ and his church, his bride. And Israel was kind of off to the side. But they were the focus all through the Old Testament. So what happened to them? Why should they get relegated to second place? They're not. Let me explain Israel's unique position, okay? Hosea chapter 2, verses 16 through 19. Just bear with me as I read this. It shall be at that day, saith the Lord, that thou shalt call me Ishi, thou shalt call me no more Bali. He's talking about the idolatry that Israel had developed all through their history. And they started worshiping Balaam, okay, false gods. Ishi is a return to the true God. And God says, For I will take away the names of Balaam out of her mouth. They shall no more be remembered by their name. And in that day will I make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, with the fowls of heaven, creeping things of the ground. And I will break the bow and the sword and the battle out of the earth, and I will make them to lie down safely. This is talking about the millennial kingdom. And God goes on in that verse in Hosea, and he says, And I will betroth thee unto me forever talking to Israel. Yea, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness and in judgment and in loving kindness and in mercies. This is explained further in Jeremiah. Chapter 3, this is God speaking to Israel again. He says, Turn, O backsliding children, saith the Lord, for I am married to you. The words of God. And I will take you of one city, two of a family, and I'll bring you to Zion. So why is Israel, the Jews, not highlighted in this marriage feast? Because Israel is the wife of Jehovah God the Father. They have already been highlighted all throughout history. And they will again be highlighted in the millennial kingdom as an exalted nation, the bride of Jehovah, not the bride of Christ. So what we will experience in this great marriage feast is we will have the groom's entire family. Isn't Christ talked about as the son of Israel? In Revelation, we have a picture of Israel as a woman who gives birth to a son, Jesus Christ. Who is her husband? God the Father. 
Jesus is the Son of God. So the analogy is complete. When we get to the millennial kingdom in this great marriage feast, we have God the Father present. We have his bride present at this marriage feast in in, in Israel, all redeemed Israel. We have Jesus as the groom, and we have the church as the bride. And all of the other saints, Gentiles who died before in the Old Testament and during the tribulation will make up the rest of those invited guests. And so that's what this is explaining to us. That final event, just as the the millennial kingdom starts, of the great wedding feast and all that leads up to it. Now, I don't have time today to dig into the millennial kingdom. We'll, We'll get there in chapter 20, okay? We'll take some time to look at the millennial kingdom. But in verse 10, John receives this from the angel, and he's so overwhelmed at what he's been shown that he drops to his knees and begins to worship the angel that's told him all of this news about what's going to happen. And the angel immediately corrects him and says, don't do that because I'm just a servant of God, just like you and your brethren. I'm just a servant. Don't worship me. Save your worship for the one who deserves it. Worship God alone. Don't worship an angel. Worship God. And then he says, he uses this phrase, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. All of what he just relayed to John is not his testimony. It's the testimony of God and Jesus Christ. So all of this comes from God's throne. It's not news the angel made up. But there's some more significance to what he says here when he says that the, that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The fact that he uses the earthly name of Jesus Christ here, all up to this point we see the lamb, the lamb, the lamb. We hardly ever see Jesus referred to as Jesus apart from the Gospels and apart from the apostles preaching Jesus Christ. You don't find the word Jesus much in Revelation, but here the angel uses it twice. And there's significance to the fact that he uses the earthly name of the Lamb of God in this context. Because he says, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And what he's saying here in using the human name of Jesus is that the human being, Jesus Christ, is the fulfillment of all prophecy. It all points to him. And so everything that we've seen, not only in Revelation, but everything in the Old Testament that the prophets brought forth to Israel and to the world all points to Jesus Christ, and he is the fulfillment of everything. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. His earthly ministry, his earthly death, his resurrection, he fulfilled everything. And in the end, he will come back bodily to the earth to destroy his enemies and set up his kingdom and celebrate with his bride and his family and his friends. And he will again continue to completely fulfill all prophecy. He's at the middle of all of it. And so as we worship, as we live our lives, we must never, ever lose sight of who is at the center of everything. And that's our problem. Because so many times we put ourselves at the center, we look at our circumstances, we look at what we have to go through, we look at what we have and what we don't have, we pity ourselves 
when we should be looking at Jesus Christ. That's the solution. And the angel gave it to us right here in his testimony to John. Jesus is the fulfillment of it all. And so we must never lose sight of who is at the center of it all. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, our righteous Savior, our righteous Judge, our Lord, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. He's what we live for. He's who we live through. He is everything. And so that's the message that he leaves with John here in this passage. Now, next week, hopefully, Lord willing, we're going to get to the Battle of Armageddon, the great battle that happens on the earth as Christ completely destroys his enemies, setting up the stage for all of what we read today. All right, but we're going to stop there. So I don't want to keep any longer. I would love to just jump right in and keep going, but we'll take a pause for a week to let you get ready. But I, I encourage you, read through the rest of chapter 19 because it'll set the stage for what we're going to be talking about next week. All right, let's have a word of prayer as we finish up today. Father, we thank you for your word and the things that it teaches us. And Lord, there are so many things that are relevant to our lives, even as we see this picture of the wedding, the bride of Christ, and our preparation in how we prepare ourselves on this earth and how you will prepare us, even as we get to heaven, to be presented as your bride, perfect, holy, without spot or blemish before you. And Lord, the celebration that will ensue Lord, we look forward to that, a celebration that will, in essence, last for a thousand years as we are joined completely to our Savior and to our groom. But Lord, until that day, I pray that you would keep us faithful in continuing to do your work and continuing to prepare ourselves for that day when you are calling us, when you call us home. And so, Lord, help us to keep watching, to be ready, as we've already sung this morning for that day, because we don't know the day or hour when you will appear. Lord, thank you that you've given us your Holy Spirit, that we have the comforter from you, that he gives us strength, that he guides us, he teaches us day by day, and helps us to prepare ourselves for that final day. But Lord, keep us faithful until then. Thank you again for your word. May we be hearers and, not, may we be hearers and doers, not just hearing and understanding and think it's interesting, but, Lord, finding practical applications from this in our lives. And, Lord, again, we just praise you for your goodness, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.